Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. All right. Um, good evening, everybody. Um, thank you very much for, for coming to LSE tonight. Um, we all understand that it's not the ideal day to run uh, a public event uh, here at the LSE, taking into consideration the railroad strikes, there are also teaching strikes, so um, it's, it's definitely quite a tricky environment for us, but thank you very much for nonetheless making it to this event, where we basically try to uh, discuss the greater challenges, so the big picture that trade policymakers may face over the next 10 years, and we are very happy to hear about different perspectives and, and thoughts on this topic, and perhaps also solutions. My name is Robert Bezado. Uh, I'm an assistant professor for international political economy here at the LSE, and I will quickly introduce uh, the other speakers. Uh, first of all, Crawford Falconer, uh, who is the second um, permanent secretary at the, the Department for International Trade, uh, who studied at Wellington University, but also at LSE, so very nice to have you back. Uh, you held many high-ranking positions in the uh, New Zealand um, Ministry of Trade. You were the ambassador at the WTO, but you were also chair of the OECD Trade Committee. Um, and now uh, you are also the chief trade negotiations advisor to the British government. So thank you very much for coming. Secondly, uh, Ignacio Becero, uh, director at, direct, at the Directorate General for Trade uh, and director notably for multilateral affairs, um, who holds a law degrees from Complutense in Madrid, but also UCL. Uh, you were notably involved in the TTIP negotiations and a number of other negotiations, obviously also the Uruguay round negotiations, for instance. Recently you, um, sorry, so Ignacio. Um, then uh, also we are very, very uh, happy to welcome back Jana Dreyer, uh, who also studied at the LSE, but also at Sciences Po. You have a background in journalism but also at think tanks, you worked at ESAIP, the Institut Montaigne, and you notably founded and are basically running Borderlex, which is a very important uh, newsletter for anything trade-related, so if you're interested, you should uh, check it out, I guess. Uh, then we're also very happy to have uh, Hanku Yeo, um, who uh, has been the Minister of Trade of uh, South Korea and held before that many uh, different high-ranking uh, positions in the South Korean administration, and right now, you are uh, a joint professor, I think, at Seoul National University, and you have degrees from Harvard and Seoul National. And lastly, but not least, uh, Jeffrey Yu. Um, uh, you studied also at LSE, so uh, there's a bit of a pattern here, I guess. Um, and you worked at UBS and are now at BNY Mellon uh, as an emerging market uh, specialist and analyst. Uh, and um, yeah, we are really happy to have you here. Um, Unfortunately, some of you may think that also uh, Yu Ye uh, should be here from Chatham House, but she unfortunately had family commitments, so she couldn't come. But uh, we are nonetheless very, very happy. Yeah. All right, John, the floor is yours. Right. I hope uh, this is going to work. Uh, I can see all the Q&A, so if it doesn't um, online, I'll be told very quickly. Um, so I'm John Alty. Um, I was at the Department uh, for International Trade, but I'm now a visiting uh, professor in practice at London School of Economics, and I'm going to be moderating the session as best I can. So the way it will work is that uh, each of our panelists will... Um, uh, give an in initial uh, perspective on the uh, challenges facing the global trading system and also hopefully some ideas about what we might uh, do about them. 
Um, and uh, when, that's, uh, when each of them has had the chance to do that, uh, and uh, maybe uh, a bit of response to points that have come up, uh, I may ask a few questions, but we will also then have uh, the chance for you to ask questions from the floor, and also uh, uh, those listening in um, online to ask questions, uh, which I will endeavour to moderate. Um, so I'm hoping there'll be plenty of opportunity for interaction. I'm sure our panelists are hoping that as well. Um, but that means getting going uh, now. So uh, I'd like to start off first uh, by asking Crawford. Uh, with, uh, he's seen various waves of uh, globalization or deglobalization uh, give his uh, perspective on uh, the way ahead. Crawford. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Uh... It's a while since I've been in this building. I'm not going to let on how long ago it was, but quite a while. But uh, so uh, there are a series of questions that I'm supposed to kind of deal with, like what are the challenges and what are the responses? Um, sort of very Toynbeistic. Um, so I'll, I'll give you I'll give you my ideas on what I think the major challenges are, and for what it's worth, uh, somewhat of the responses to those major challenges. I think actually it says threats in the note that I was given. John, after years being a civil servant, um, tends not to use inflammatory words like threats and goes for challenges, you know. Um, that's just the way it is. So I'll call them threats because I think they are threats. Um, but like a lot of threats, some of them come to pass and some don't. Um, first of all, I mean, I think, what, what do I think are the threats? Um, I think the biggest one is what I'd call sort of complacency and fatigue, frankly, on trade. Um, I think it sounds very mundane, but I think that's the problem. I think there's a lot of complacency about it, um, strangely enough. Um, secondly, I think there is a reality of a much more diffuse international economic and trade power around the globe than there was in the post-war period, obviously, and that's a really big challenge in and of itself. Lots of complex things around that, but clearly the basic architecture was never designed to deal with that. Um, Third one is a WTO that is not working as well as it should, uh, which is a bit related to what I just said before, but it can be de dealt with distinctly. And I would say what is a recognition, perhaps, rather than something that's fundamentally changed, but a recognition that it's actually a more dangerous world than it was a decade ago for all sorts of reasons. That makes a real, that in itself is a real challenge. So what do you do to those, say, four challenges? Okay, my first one is, um, and this, I would say this because it's uh, kind of in the DNA of, of what the UK government is doing, um, and that is where well, you go on the front foot. So you go on the front foot, cricketing analogies, a lot of people, you don't look like you're used to cricket, but I mean, it just basically, basically means take the initiative. So if you're actually facing complacency, fatigue, and a, and, a, and a withdrawal from a trade liberalization world, what do you do? Sort of tell people they should be a bit more active? No, get on and do it. Lead by example. And I think that's, that's the response. Um, I don't actually think you have to retreat into accepting that premise. Um, I think you have to get out and do something about it. And you do, because, and it will make a difference. Um, uh, you know, when, when the UK first had its independent trade policy after it left the EU, everybody said, UK can't do this, you can't, you can't do trade agreements. All those existing trade agreements that you had as part of the EU, you'll never be able to replicate them, it just won't happen. 
that was the pessimistic view. Well, it didn't happen. They were all negotiated. What's more, people were queuing up to negotiate with the UK, and we have been negotiating. We negotiated a, a modern, a new agreement with Japan, which has gone on to develop into a kind of leadership relationship with them, leading into a plurilateral agreement with CPTPP. We negotiated with Australia and New Zealand. We're negotiating and continuing to negotiate with the GCC. We've got Canada and Mexico. Uh, Switzerland's on the horizon. So while out there in the world there is this kind of pessimism about what's going on, the reality is that you know, the UK, by its own example, has shown not only that it can actually find a way to liberalise, but there's plenty of other people out there that want to liberalise as well. So, okay, there are some that don't, but what are you going to do, sit back and say the ones that don't, well, you know, that means none of us can do it. No, you get on and do something about it. That seems to me to actually be the first and most important thing. Secondly, you actually do something about updating by negotiating things that are now commensurate with the way in which international business is done. And that means moving into the area of actually negotiating digital trade provisions. UK has negotiated a digital agreement with Singapore. Um, we've been, we're, we're negotiating to get into CPTPP, which will have a digital provision in it. We're working with Southeast Asian countries on, on digital provisions. I mean, digital trade is it. I mean, people don't sort of say, well, digital trade must be something new. No, it isn't. I mean, basically 92%, over 90% of our financial exports, exports from the UK are delivered digitally. It's about services, and for over 80% of our services exports, they're delivered digitally. So digital trade isn't something over and above what you're doing. It is the essence of how trade is being performed. Now, there's lots of things we can say about that. I use that just as an example um, as to what you should do. And the next thing you should do, follow the money, is my advice. <laughs> follow the money. And so that means linking into the Indo-Pacific region. Um, one half of the 2.3 billion middle class will be in the Indo-Pacific region. That's where growth is and will be, despite the difficulties of the global economy, that's where we are. Second thing, in response to the second challenge, which is, you know, a more diffuse trade power, time to work on plan B. Of course we believe in multilateralism, of course a multilateral trade regime is a good idea, but it has not been able to be up to date, so you've got to have plan B. And what is plan B? Well, I mentioned CPTPP, building your bilateral agreements into what over time will be, and I use this term because I'm in an academic environment and I can get away with it, convergent pluralateralism. Well, that's the way to go, convergent pluralateralism. CPTPP will grow. Uh, there are plenty of other agreements out in the regions. And over time, you start to build those because they have the provisions in them that the WTO doesn't. And the condition of membership to those agreements will be capacity to actually live up to those commitments. So that's an alternative way of developing a more solid rules-based system than we've been able to do in the WTO. Don't give up on the WTO in that respect. And there are some plurilateral agreements in the WTO, like electronic commerce and so on, that we need to, need to work on. But as I say, we've got to have that plan B. And that, for a market-oriented, uh, rule of law oriented economies, I think that is in fact what plan B has to be. Third thing that I would say is 
In the WTO itself, we've got to get out of our comfort zone. So I think, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is what the policy should be, but at the moment we have a rules-based system that doesn't work because we can't enforce it through dispute settlement. Okay? So that's a problem, big problem. I think we have to think about other alternatives. You know, I'll just leave you with a few thoughts. In actual fact, I think the dispute settlement situation in Geneva, in the WTO, is now worse than it was when we operated a much more primitive dispute settlement system under the old GATT. There was much greater results and more positive outcomes. So I think we have to ask ourselves, instead of constantly saying we just want to go back to the existing appellate body, the existing dispute settlement system the way it was, I think we've got to ask ourselves much more seriously whether in fact there are some ways in which, just ask the question instead of denying the question can be asked, whether in fact we can create more room for a somewhat more arbitration, diplomatic, negotiated solution to problems without abandoning the whole dispute settlement system, but ensuring that the straitjacket of that system, which has been too tight, can actually be loosened a little bit in a way that it might actually work more pragmatically so that we can get some things resolved and there are a lot of problems to resolve. And finally, my fourth point on how we respond to this more dangerous world is what I would call, for the font of it, of I think it's protect the downside is how I would describe it. And that comes about having to spend time with like-minded economies to ensure that supply chain diversity is properly examined and available, and that's an analytical work as much as a practical one at the moment, where the like-minded economies that are worried about the extent to which supply chains can be manipulated and controlled should work together to assist each other to create the options for alternatives, not necessarily to dictate what happens, but actually to be able to create for firms an environment in which they can make alternative approaches. And I think the other thing is that we have to have effective export controls they have to be proportionate. But the world is more dangerous than it was, and the reality is that we will have to actually really apply ourselves to those areas so that we don't end up overreacting to legitimate concerns that we have uh, about, about the future. So uh, I could ramble on for a long period of time, and indeed I'm necessarily talking about a high level of generality on these things. I just wanted to land those basic concepts and hopefully that will contribute to the discussion. Thank you. Uh, thanks for getting us off to a punchy start. Uh, I'm sure we'll come back to some of those points and there may be a few questions uh, prompted. Um, but Jana, I'd like to ask you to give us your perspective. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased and honored to be here and to be back at LSE to share some thoughts after a, a career of working in, in trade policy, after having studied trade policy here. So it's quite, quite, a, quite an event even for me personally tonight. Um, I think it's interesting to speak uh, after Crawford Falconer because um, what I will say is convergent and also divergent uh, with what he's saying. Uh, clearly, the World Trade Organization-centric system we've gotten used to is maybe not dead, but it's certainly become optional, certainly for the big powers, certainly for the United States, and to some extent for the EU, which are the two 
actors I will be speaking about most, building it up, building in a bit of UK along the way as well. The US-China systemic rivalry and the US policy turned towards a zero-sum approach to China's technological development are really upending the system. Washington is not on good terms with the WTO's dispute settlement system, and it's gotten worse after recent panel rulings that did not accept the United States national security arguments related to its tariffs on steel and aluminum enacted during the Trump era, and following a ruling also on the panelists that dismissed the US views on its measures related to Hong Kong, the labeling of Hong Kong product as originating from China after China enacted this national security law in Hong Kong. So if there is ever to be an agreement at the WTO about WTO reform, we are sure this is sure to be WTO minus whatever the outcome. Recent developments in the US tech and semiconductor export control policy also indicate that Washington is orchestrating a return to Cold War era practices in restricting tech exports to systemic rivals. I mean, I've discovered on the way institutions that had disappeared, such as COCOM, the Coordinating Committee for Multilateral Export Controls. It doesn't exist anymore, but the US is working a bit along the same lines in a less unanimous way, more bilaterally with anyone to have everyone on the allied side aligned with US entity policy. The line, however, is seen from the point of view of European and some Asian partners is increasingly blurred between avoiding that Beijing pick up its high-end technologies for military use and simply depriving China more generally of a chance to compete commercially in the tech area. And sitting in Brussels, I know that there's a lot of worry that some member states are being dragged into the second type of policy, which is a bit more controversial and proving rather acrimonious. Now to climate change, because I was asked to talk about it too. We are in a world where everyone knows in theory that climate change is an existential threat for all, that it needs to be tackling in a coordinated and cooperative manner with a functioning global institutional framework, ideally also with a global carbon price. We're not there. Instead, we have a war on the European continent waged by a petrostate, which highlights how much broader the problem of our fossil fuel dependency is. It's not only the climate, but even security that is at stake here. We've had enough petroleum-related wars also. There is a WTO dimension to the war in Ukraine. In 2022, 14 WTO members, including the United States, the European Union, Canada, Japan, I think Korea too, but you might correct me, Australia, New Zealand. So more than a third of the world's GDP in purchasing power parity terms have told Russia, you don't enjoy MFN rights under the WTO anymore. It looks right now the US have de facto suspended MFN treatment against China and the West, broadly speaking, against Russia. So it reminds me a little bit of back to pre-1995, definitely. Only with the climate problem on top. 
so that's fun. Um, it's difficult to conceive uh, Europe or the United States switching massively to renewable energies and to electrifying their heating and road transport systems without Chinese technology. Uh, and industrial products, solar panels, wind power, batteries, rare earths, electric vehicles, you name it. But for the United States, with its current mindset, it is simply inconceivable that Chinese technology build the country's green infrastructure as it embarks on a massive su subsidy spree, also uh, not exactly in compliance with the WTO rulebook, uh, to accelerate its transition to net zero. One side effect of excluding China from the equation here is that it, the US, uh, you know, has a tendency to, to act a bit in a predatory way with its allies and to snatch investments and tech te also trying to lure investments away from uh, Europe and some uh, other Asia-Pacific countries as well. Now to the EU. Uh, contrary to how many in Brussels and some European capitals portray themselves, the EU is not only a victim of a state capitalist China on the one hand and a self-serving United States on the other, which is something one, one hears a lot uh, in Brussels. Uh, the EU is, of course, doing its own bit in undermining the WTO-centered system. The prime example for this, uh, but it's not the only example, is its carbon border adjustment mechanism. Um, the discourse in Brussels is that CBAM is WTO compliant because non-discriminatory, non at least on paper. Um, that's not the point. The point is that the EU has not even made the effort of operating within the WTO rulebook, which by and large outlaws discriminating against imports uh, um, uh, because of the way they, they are made. Um, some say this is a WTO problem of how it is made. We need to reform the WTO, but it's still, it, it's thrown the gauntlet to the institution. Um, uh, and uh, I know that, I know from experience in talking to people that this has been noticed. Um, uh, the losers in this brave new world are the countries the US and the European Union currently need most, uh, because EU too is seeking to reduce its trade and geopolitical exposure to China. The United States and the EU need the markets, goodwill and cooperation of uh, wealthy, like-minded, friendly, mid-range mid powers who value very much the multilateral trading system and the WTO. It needs the markets, goodwill, cooperation uh, of uh, dynamic but complicated big emerging markets in Asia, Latin America, and Africa. And geopolitically also, we've seen it with, with the war in Ukraine, also the support of the global south. Yet on both sides of the Atlantic, our domestic politics are in a rut. Uh, this is partly because of the long-term consequences of some of the market liberalization we've undertaken since the 1990s. Uh, it has mostly to do with uh, the consent of the losers of this process, which is increasingly difficult to obtain, especially also after the austerity measures that have been been enacted after 2000, the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, this makes it politically difficult to take necessary steps to do apparently straightforward things in trade, such as ratifying bilateral trade agreements. It's become increasingly difficult on both sides of the Atlantic. The United States pulled out of TPP in the EU. It's getting complicated to get even CETA with Canada through all the member states. Uh, and I'm not even talking about trying to get Mercosur over the line, which is something the Commission is trying to do. Good luck. Um, 
In her latest book entitled This Order, Oxford political economist Helen Thompson says that, that the current return to more ethno-nationalist domestic politics uh, in our Western world, combined with an yet-to-come political reckoning on, on what it means, the costs and, and, the, and the strains that will come with, with changing our energy system, th this, this combination is, I quote her, possibly destructive, unquote, for democracies. And I think for our democracies now, we, we are really challenged. And I think she's right. Um, and I think this context is, is inherently detrimental to niceties such as multilateral open rules-based system. Um, one thing on how things are shaping up uh, is, is the current GSP overhaul in the EU, the general system scheme of preferences for developing countries. Uh, it is revised every, every few years, and now the current revision foresees that uh, developing countries need to abide by migration, uh, migrant repatriation uh, agreements, sort of linking topics that's proving very controversial and proves, uh, probably proves uh, Helen Thompson's point in, in, in a way uh, that's not helpful uh, in a context where you need, uh, obviously, the support of, of the global south, as it's called, uh, in instances such as the United Nations, given the war we have. Um, so, and, and there's a sign that countries are losing interest. Bangladesh is considering uh, joining the RCEP um, this sort of China-centric uh, regional agreement in Asia. Uh, Bangladesh is a dynamic in emerging market, probably graduating soon from its poorest country status, uh, one of the main centers of migrants to Europe. So I just wanted to flag that. A few notes on the United Kingdom in this. Uh, I think the United Kingdom shares uh, many concerns related to both China's and US trade policies. Policies. It sits a bit in the middle. Has shaped. Has you know, I, I will not elaborate on that. But um, post Brexit, the UK has lost some of its international standing. Let's say, in terms of trade policy, I find that I find it so revealing that the UK. I don't know why. Maybe you, Crawford, will tell us why. But um, the the UK was not a third party in the Hong Kong China WTO case, which I mentioned at the very beginning. I find that stunning. I mean, the UK was the guardian of this agreement uh, with China on, that, that was uh, supposed to preserve the one country, uh, two systems uh, system. And then it was not there. Did it not want to rock the boat with Washington, with Beijing? Why was it absent as a third party, whereas many others, even Canada, were third parties to this case? I found that very revealing. Uh, now to. Yeah, and I think also within this, being in this Atlantic uh, world, the United Kingdom also has problems, you know, getting heard uh, due to the Northern Ireland uh, situation right now, which is, has to do with uh, reckoning with the reality of what it means to have left the EU. Now to policy. I mean, I think that's one thing I share, uh, a, a point that I would really emphasize, and I agree 100% here with Crawford Procona, is that we're too complacent. I think those in, engaged, it starts with thought leadership. The, uh, those engaged in it uh, now need to get real about the politics and geopolitics that we're in. The problem is not only China, of course, but it's our own internal cohesion as societies. And I, I often sense a form of complacency, you know, a little trade policy and EU and, you know, 
post-Brexit trade bubbles. Uh, you know, we, we need to get real. We need to understand what this, the, the dangerous world we're in now. Um, in terms of reforming the system, etc., there's so many ideas out there on how you could fix the WTO, update rules to make them climate friendly, digital, etc. I mean, the, the solutions are there. The, the problem is finding the political equation to get there. Um, and, and I mean, I, I will refrain from, from, from commenting on the US foreign policy because it's beyond my pay grade and I have no expertise really on, on military affairs. But what I would say from the EU is that we are too weak in the EU in, in terms of having a proper foreign policy strategy. And I think one needs to, the two worlds, foreign policy people and trade people need to start working together more and understanding each other better. Uh, there are maybe two big urgent tasks, I would say, sitting here in London. Is, uh, I think the first is that the EU, US, and UK need to find a modus vivendi, vivendi to ensure that the Atlantic economic space uh, we all rely on uh, remains open to trade, to business, to data flows, to tech transfers that the Atlantic Lake does not uh, become a battleground where zero-sum subsidy tech and investment politics, uh, policies are being played out. Fixing Northern Ireland would bring the UK back into the game, I believe, so I hope that will get done at some point soon. Um, I also think that the EU-US Trade and Technology Council has a lot of potential. I hope it will deliver a bit more. I'm also convinced that the EU and the US need to bring together their respective Indo-Pacific strategies uh, and work with uh, you know, all, the, all the countries that are part of IPEF or the EU's policies towards Korea, Japan, uh, Singapore, uh, to name a few. Um, I think, and the second task is in this environment, I think, uh, do no harm. Uh, is very important, uh, and I think little things, for talking about the EU, this GSP thing is scandalous, absolutely scandalous, drop it. I mean, it's exactly not the way you will win friends in the world we're in, and we need them. Um, for the US, I, I heard, I mean, I'm not in Washington uh, as much plugged to Washington, but I think symbolically renewing AGOA, the African Growth and Opportunity Act, which, which is due soon, would help, uh, and, and um, I have not been very encouraged so far about the way it's going, but there's still two years to go. Thank you. Thank you. So, Ignacio, um, there are various comments about the EU there, but I'm sure you've got your own thoughts, and uh, particularly on WTO would be yeah. helpful. No, thanks a lot, uh, John, and actually it's really very interesting to intervene in this panel after Crawford and Yana. I mean, I'm planning to talk uh, mostly about uh, WTO and not to do it from a short-term perspective, but to do it from a more of a strategic perspective, because I understand uh, that the idea here is to look into the world ahead over the next decade, and which are the challenges for the global trading system. But I would not resist the temptation to also make a few comments uh, on the bilateral agenda, I think that has been an important focus about what uh, Crawford uh, and Yana have been uh, talking about. But let me start uh, getting first uh, into a bit of a personal comment. I have been also quite some time involved in trade policy. I think when I was a young uh, official, my first job uh, 
was joining the European Commission team that negotiated the Uruguay round. I think that Clofford was at that point in time a diplomat in Geneva. So I have been involved in trade policy for almost 40 years now. I don't think I have ever witnessed in my professional career a more challenging time to, for trade policy. I mean, if you actually look into the challenges that we are facing at this point in time, we are having, of course, the geopolitical the conflict uh, between the United States and China, that it's played itself very much in the technological sphere, which implies that the trade uh, restrictions linked to security are going to become uh, much more common, much more uh, frequent, and this has a huge impact in terms uh, of the functioning uh, of the global uh, trading system. We are also seeing, to, in many places, a much more active role of the state uh, in the economy for a number of reasons. And of course, this also creates the potential for conflicts relating to how to ensure to, that there is a level playing field, subsidies that are formed of a state intervention, many times for very legitimate uh, reasons, but at the same time with a huge potential to, for conflict being linked to that. And at the same time, we are seeing a major transformation to, of the global economy. It is, of course, the ambition to move towards net zero, which is actually largely shared and which implies a number of actions that many of us are going to, to be taking to be able to fulfill the, our net zero objectives. And at the same time, the digital transformation of the global economy. And all of these things have very important uh, trade policy implications. There's a very serious risk of fragmentation of the global trading system. I mean, I'm not uh, of the view that we are entering into a deglobalization phase, but at the same time, it would be uh, a bit uh, over-optimistic not to see that we are facing very serious risks of fragmentation. And that's why, quite frankly, the WTO matters. The WTO matters even as it is now, even if it is not reformed. The rules of the WTO, as they were designed, that is still fundamentally valid. Of course, they should be updated, they should be developed. But it is critical, I think, that all of us who believe in global trade, that are still very much centered in seeing what needs to be done to make the WTO a more functioning global institution, be more relevant for the challenges of the world today. Now, I'm not going to tell you what is going to happen in the next WTO ministerial. I mean, the last WTO ministerial was a remarkable success, something which if I have had a talk uh, one month before that I was going to, to play, give my sense about what will be the outcome of the ministerial, many of you will have been said you are terribly optimistic, you really don't understand the realities of global trade. Now the challenges ahead of us are much, much more difficult. So I'm not going to give you a prediction about what the next WTO ministerial may be able to deliver. But I think there are five big challenges that need to be tackled in a multilateral setting. The first one is, of course, finding again a way to have a dispute settlement system that works. Now, the WTO is a rule-based system. It is not really possible to have a rule-based system if you don't have an acceptable way to adjudicate in dispute, something which is functioning, something which cannot be blocked at the discretion of one of the parties. Now, I have nothing against uh, the idea of looking into more avenues uh, for the, looking into alternative ways of solving disputes other than litigation. I mean, as uh, Crawford surely remembers, the European Union has been advocating for quite some time the need to develop a more effective mediation mechanism in the WTO. All of this is well and good, but at the end of the day, you need to have 
a way of enforcing the rules with functions which cannot be blocked at the discretion of one of the two parties. Now, there's a preferred way to find a solution, which is, of course, finding a multilateral agreement that is, makes it possible for the United States uh, to come back into the global uh, system of dispute resolution. And we are currently very much uh, engaged uh, to try to explore <coughs> this in the discussions in Geneva. So certainly plan A is to try as much as possible to find a way of reaching a multilateral agreement, hopefully by the time of the next uh, ministerial meeting. Of course, there always has to be a plan B, and that's why the European Union has, uh, with a very significant number of countries, entered into a multilateral interim arbitration agreement to try to be sure that the system functions without the possibility of it being blocked. And we hope very much that other countries are also ready to join <coughs> this multilateral uh, interim arbitration agreement. So fixing the WTO dispute settlement is by far the most important and immediate uh, challenge. Secondly, I totally agree with uh, uh, Crawford that trade at this point in time is a lot about digital. And the WTO would lack credibility if it is not able to also play a role when it comes to the digital economy. There I think we are going to have to be creative to be able to combine multilateralism with open pluralism. And both of them have a role uh, to play. There are negotiations which are currently <coughs> taking place uh, in Geneva to negotiate rules on e-commerce. There are some challenges that would need uh, to be would, would need, uh, to be fixed, but uh, we are very much committed uh, to try to make uh, progress in those negotiations. But at the same time, it's very important that those countries that have chosen not to participate in those negotiations also feel that their perspectives can be taken care of in the WTO. And what is important to combine negotiations of rules among those parties that want to negotiate rules, but a work program to support capacity building for the challenges relating to the regulation of the digital economy and to do this at the multilateral level. And I think if we want the WTO to function, we are going to have to combine open plurilateralism with also work at the multilateral level. And by the way, we are also very much engaged in bilateral negotiations on digital economy. We have, uh, since the TCA, we have included the digital chapter in all the agreements that we have concluded after that, including the agreement with New Zealand. And we are currently negotiating also digital issues with Australia, with Japan, with Singapore, and we will do so, and we will do so with others. But I think it's important that we have an agreement on digital which is negotiated in a multilateral forum also to avoid the risk of huge fragmentation of the digital, of the digital economy. Thirdly, and here we are getting into issues which are much more difficult, I, mean, I mentioned before the, all the tensions which are linked to the role of the state of the economy, uh, subsidies, and this is something which, quite frankly, the only place where you can't uh, tackle those issues is in the WTO. Some uh, free trade agreements have some rules uh, on subsidies, but at the end of the day, the challenges about how to ensure the, a level playing field is something where you really need to, to bring on the table all the key players to find a way of modernizing the, rule, the rules of the WTO. And if there's one area where the rules of the WTO, as they currently are, are not uh, sufficiently effective, where there's a real need uh, to modernize the rule, it is subsidies. And by the way, I'm talking about industrial, and I'm talking also about uh, agricultural uh, subsidies. Now, how to do the, that reform is going to be challenging. It is something which is going to, to take time. 
But I think increasingly you need to be looking into how you can integrate into any reform, any redesign of rules of subsidies, both the trade and an environmental perspective. You need to be able to see how you combine the both perspectives when it comes to seeing when subsidies can be designed in a manner that contributes towards achieving a legitimate policy goal, but in a manner which limits as much as possible the negative spillover effects, both from the trade perspective and from an environmental perspective. Now, this is not something which is going to, to start uh, to be negotiated uh, in the next ministerial meeting, but you need to start preparing the work to go in that uh, direction. And that's why we will be taking the, some initiative to propose more intensive discussion within the WTO about the whole issue of the interface between trade and industrial policies. That, I think, is one of the big challenges that we are facing at this point in time. Now, that brings me to the issue of the interface between trade uh, and the global uh, environment. I mean, as I said, uh, the ambition to, to move towards the, the CEO is going to imply that many of us are going to be taking to measures that have an impact on trade. I think that that's going to be inevitable. And you need to find a way to establish a framework for dialogue and cooperation on the efforts which are being made by countries to move in the direction of net zero. Now, here I have to say, Jana, I need to strongly disagree with you uh, because, uh, I mean, you can always uh, discuss the outcome. You can always have different views about the interpretation of Article 3 of the GATT, about the interpretation of Article 20. But what you cannot actually challenge is that there has been a very conscious effort in the whole development of the CBAN to design it in a manner that we feel is in line with the rules of the WTO. Now, at the end of the day, if it is something that has to be adjudicated, there will be different legal points of view. But I would say it's a very, very different perspective to that that has been taken by some other major trading partners. And because we are in an open forum, I'm go not going to name names. We have introduced measures which are clearly, manifestly, WTO incompatible. So the way that we have been designing the, the CBAN has been very careful to be sure that in no case we impose a cost on the external uh, traders, which is higher than the one that we impose domestically. This being said, what is very clear is that CBAN and other measures raise a number of challenges, and it's going to be important to have a way to see how you can tackle those challenges through cooperation with third countries. And there, uh, we certainly think uh, that the WTO has an important uh, role to play. One of the issues that we would be proposing is how to revitalize the role of the Committee of Trade and Environment in WTO, so that it becomes a real forum to try to see how you can cooperate to tackle those environmental challenges which have a global, a global dimension. And finally, there's an issue which I just want to raise, uh, but I'm not going to provide any solution. But I think it's very clear, as I said in the beginning, that we are going to see an increasing number of trade measures which are taken for security reasons that uh, the risk uh, that those measures also result in very significant conflicts uh, is out there, and there's a need to reflect and to see what it is that can be done to try to prevent abuses of the use of the security exception. And that's going to be a very challenging issue. I'm not having any particular solution at this uh, point in time, but I think that that's an issue where inevitably some discussions will be necess necessary in a multilateral framework. Now, finally, just a few words on the, on the bilateral agenda, because as I said, it was not uh, my intention to say too much, but just to be very clear, the, the European Union has also a very active uh, bilateral uh, trade uh, agenda. 
we have actually in the Indo-Pacific uh, free trade agreements of a comprehensive nature with Korea, with Japan, with Singapore, with Vietnam, and very recently concluded with New Zealand. We are negotiating with Australia. We think that there are good prospects of getting that agreement uh, concluded uh, uh, this year. And we are also engaged in very difficult, uh, but uh, potentially important uh, negotiations with India and Indonesia. So the support that we have for the WTO in no way means that we are not also very active in moving forward uh, the bilateral trade agenda. Uh, Mercosur is, of course, uh, probably one of the most challenging uh, agreements. At the same time, it's huge in terms of its geopolitical uh, significance, in terms of its uh, economic uh, value. And I think that now that the political circumstances have changed, there is going to be a clear effort to see where this agreement can be brought uh, to a satisfactory conclusion. And just simply to say that uh, one should not overemphasize uh, the difficulties of getting agreements ratified uh, in the European Union. Of course, they had uh, a very difficult discussion in the case of CETA, because at that point in time, to, because of the way that the agreement had been conceived, you needed to have unanimity in order to get the agreement uh, concluded. And then you have to get uh, ratification in all national parliaments before the agreement is fully into force. Since then, we have not concluded any agreement uh, which is not a EU-only agreement. And uh, the agreements that were concluded after CETA, all of them uh, were approved with a very, very strong support, uh, both in the Council and in the European uh, Parliament. That was the case for Japan, that was the case uh, for Vietnam and Singapore. And if, I'm quite convinced that that's also going to be the case uh, for the agreements uh, with Chile and New Zealand when they actually go through the ratification procedure. So certainly the European Union uh, still is also a very active uh, uh, player when it comes to the negotiation of bilateral trade agreements. But as I said, we believe that it's critical from the strategic point of view that we have a very clear objective of getting the, the WTO to function the, in the way that it should function, because otherwise the risk of fragmentation, the risk of escalation of uh, trade conflicts is going to be extremely high, and that's something which I think will be extremely damaging for our prosperity, and quite frankly, may also have negative impact that go beyond the economic sphere. So, as I said in the beginning, I think the WTO, from our point of view, really matters. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Uh, so, uh... Trade Minister Yeo, uh, we've heard a lot from a European, broadly European perspective. It would be great to hear from a Southeast Asian perspective and, and maybe also uh, comment on what people have said about the US. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you. Good evening. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, LSE for organizing this wonderful uh, event. And I'm very honored to uh, speak at this prestigious uh, you know, world-class institution who has been a strong advocate on this globalization and also you know, this open and free trade. Um, I guess I'm the only one who flies all the way from Asia and uh, <laughs> the only one with jet lag in this room. So it's quite challenging to stay you know, away. Um, 
actually normally it takes about more than 10 hours from to, to fly from Seoul to London but this time it took 14 hours 14 hours why because we have to avoid entering into Russian territory Russian air so we the flight had to detour and then it took 14 hours I think it really symbolized uh, what kind of a world uh, we are living right now and then uh, it really the world is changing and world change a lot uh, especially you know the, uh, on the February uh, 24th uh, last year when the Russia invaded uh, Ukraine and then also um, you know even before that you know we, we've gone through this the pandemic you know and then um, also you know along with uh, the ongoing this G2 rivalry that has been really uh, building you know uh, momentum for the last several years so I think these are the some of the uh, the global trade environment that we are facing I mean if you uh, I spent about uh, you know the 29 years in the public service and most of the time in this uh, you know, international uh, trade field but even several years ago uh, as a trade official most of my time has was been has been spent on um, negotiating you know this free trade agreement how to expand you know this uh, trade network and how to work with this multilateral trading you know system and then WTO but recently my job has changed I mean yes of course we you know I have been thinking about how to expand this free trade uh, network but also I'm constantly thinking about how to address this disruption in the supply chain how to factor into this geopolitical risk that we are facing in this uh, global you know trade you know etc so I think uh, this really symbolizes uh, what kind of you know uh, changing world that we are living and what kind of a paradigm change that we are going through and I'm also uh, quite uh, it's quite interesting to uh, you know the, to see that um, the economic security hasn't been raised uh, in, in the previous uh, intervention uh, by you know, other speakers but whenever I go to international seminars like this in Washington DC or in Asia I think this economic security issue are probably one of the first issues that come up because um, you know how to navigate this very turbulent uh, you know trade environment um, in the midst of the G2 uh, geopolitical rivalry and then how to uh, find the right balance between uh, you know this free and open trade but also more increasingly this politicized and uh, you know with, with geopolitical factor so that is um, you know what I'm trying to uh, talk about today mm. um, I'd like to add you know uh, my perspective from mostly the Asia Pacific you know perspective so uh, three points the first um, I think in the Indo-Pacific or Asia-Pacific those are the region where you see a very dynamic uh, relatively dynamic um, you know negotiation happening still with this market liberalizing uh, components and also rulemaking for example CPTPP and RCEP actually I've been uh, chief negotiator for RCEP as well as CPTPP by the way Korea is not a part of CPTPP yet 
but for the last nine years, we have been you know, really trying to uh, find ways to you know, get into CPTPP. I think everybody's looking at the UK right now. You know, UK is, uh, you know, is negotiating its first uh, accession uh, into CPTPP. And I think um, you know, this UK and also all the other the CPTPP members, they need to really strike a right balance between setting a high, robust you know, standard versus not being perceived uh, you know, uh, too exclusive or imposing too high kind of entrance fee for this new entrance. Because in the end, CPTPP needs to expand uh, their membership right now. They cannot be satisfied with these 11 current members of CPTPP. And in fact, um, I think one of our previous uh, the speakers uh, talked about this plurilateralism, open plurilateralism. I completely agree uh, with it. But um, this uh, CPTPP is it's all about the network effect. The more members you have, the better benefit each of the members get. Right? And um, CPP is not inclusive enough yet because among these Indo-Pacific you know, region, Korea is missing right now. And then only three countries in highly, fastly growing this uh, ASEAN, 10 ASEAN countries, only three countries are in the CPTPP, only Vietnam, Malaysia, and Brunei. So somehow they need to find a way to expand this uh, CPTPP membership. So, um, so that's why I think the, the UK's first precedence will really uh, set the scene for the, all these other uh, countries potentially interested in entering into uh, CPTPP. RCEP. I think one of the first questions I get is uh, how do you compare RCEP and CPTPP? You know, CPTPP used to be US driven, but after that, you know, Japan took over the leadership role, but the CPTPP is China driven. But I disagree. Uh, CPTPP is not China driven. CPTPP is ASEAN driven. ASEAN centrality is at the center of this RCEP. I was chief negotiator for RCEP when the RCEP was concluded in 2019, first and then 2020. Um, it's about, uh, and also it's about one year since this RCEP uh, you know, got into uh, effect and implemented. And it's a bit too early to really you know, accurately assess uh, the impact of the RCEP. But some of the interesting um, observation from RCEP is that uh, the rules of origin, you know, you might have studied about this spaghetti ball, you know, or, you know this you know, noodle effect, but uh, at least uh, RCEP has integrated these 15 very, very different diverse countries into one simple rule of origin, or you know, one rule. And that really helped the businesses to really, um, you know, uh, decrease all the administrative hurdles and cost. So, for example, um, we have just some of the very interesting anecdotal uh, the cases where, for example, between Korea and Japan, uh, Korea and, uh, and, and China, we have bilateral FTA, and also we have RCEP. So, for so on some of a specific product line, uh, the business have to decide which one they will choose. You know, sort of forum shopping, uh, but. Uh, on those products, the tariff are lower 
in this bilateral FTA. But the rules of origin is, is much more business friendly in RCEP. What are you going to choose if you are business? What we are observing is that businesses are choosing RCEP. Although the tariff is higher, but the rules of origin is simpler. So they are choosing this RCEP. So I think uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll find more interesting um, you know, the business behaviors, um, how they choose this different you know, platform of FTA versus you know, plurilateral uh, FTA. Uh, but these are the kind of a, for the last one years of a kind of early observation. My second point is that, okay, then let me you know, ask you a question. So RCEP or CPTPP, are these kind of a enough platform to address all these new issues that we are dealing with? No, um, I don't think so. As previous uh, speakers, uh, you know, mentioned, you know, this supply chain disruption and this very rapid uh, digitalization and also decarbonization, you know, and then all this tech nationalism, you know, these are the really new kinds of uh, issues that uh, the trade officials have to deal with. But CPTPP and RCEP, number one, is getting out of, out of date. CPTP was concluded in 2015, right? And RCEP was uh, started in, I think, 2012, and then didn't change that much, the, the, the basic framework of the, the older rule. Um, and then, you know, Kundis, you know, talk about BC and AAC, you know, before the COVID and after the COVID. And it's completely changed, you know, since RCEP and you know, CPTPP was designed. So how, so, so what, what would be the, you know, uh, the platform, new kind of approach or new kind of platform mechanism that we can address this issue? I think IPEC, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, and also this TTC, Trade and Technology, uh, you know, the Council, I think those are the, some of the attempts to try to uh, deal with these new kinds of challenges that we are facing. I think I, I, I would argue that these kind of uh, you know, new, new uh, the challenges and issues are closely interrelated with this economic security issue that I you know, the raised uh, at the beginning. So um, there are many skeptics uh, on this iPad, for example, because you know, they argue that it, it, it's lacking this market access component. Yes, it could have been better if it included this market access component. But even my argument is that even without uh, you know, this the market access component, we need new ideas. We need new approach to address this kind of supply chain issue. You know, and then uh, this decarbonizing issue, like economic coercion issue. You know. So those new issues that I, I think we can you know, try to address through this new kind of talk. So, so that, that's why I have, I'm, I'm, you know, strong, one of the strong advocates on this uh, iPad. Um, and um, also, I, you know, the, the question I want to pose is that, I'd like to pose to you, is that, um, you know, between United States and Indo-Pacific, we have this iPad going on, right? And then between United States and European, you know, European Union, uh, this TTC is going on. I think TTC is more of kind of a you know, forum that you know, talk about all these issues and 
explore you know, solution. I think uh, this IPEP is more kind of rulemaking, you know, more kind of a specific rulemaking you know, function. Then what about between Asia and Europe? Why don't we have anything going on between Asia and Europe? I think that uh, you know, Asia uh, and the Europe has a lot in common. You, sh you share you know, the same value, and uh, you know, especially this open uh, trading system and multilateral uh, rule-based international order, that's what we share between Asia and the Europe. And if you look at uh, for the last decade or so, many of really these major trade initiatives was initiated uh, by small or middle power countries. Look at CPTPP. It started from P4, uh, just small four countries, Singapore, New Zealand, uh, uh, and uh, uh, the, the Chile, uh, and Brunei. And then it evolved into the, you know, this TPP, when United States joined and Japan joined, etc. So I think, yes, um, G2 tension and then all this more function of WTO, yeah, it's a frustrating, but I think there could be valid role that these middle power countries in Asia and Europe can do together. So that's what one question, um, you know, the kind of food for thought that I, I'd like to pose. The lastly, I cannot help but mentioning this in, you know, Inflation Reduction Act. Probably you might have heard a lot uh, from the newspaper about this, the US, um, you know, this IRA. And I think IRA is a game changer in many ways. Good, but also in not good way. First, it's, uh, you know, 300, I think it's 80, uh, $369 billion, the big, big, you know, the you know, financial muscle will put into really trans, uh, transforming this industrial structure into low carbon. So in a way, that is, is really great uh, landmark. But also, as we all know, it has this discriminatory nature. Right? And then I was very, very kind of curious how the you know, European uh, Union is reacting. Uh, but I think you know, the, there, is, there seems to be you know, a lot of discussion that uh, also European Union is trying to develop the European version of this IRA. That brings me to, I think, the previous uh, point about this industrial policy, you know, the, the return of this industrial policy. And then what is interesting is that the wind, the, the, the wind is blowing from the Atlantic, you know, and they're just spreading to back to this uh, you know, Indo-Pacific. So are we you know, kind of witnessing another kind of race to the bottom, or is it so I think that's what we really have to, you know, uh, you know, to contemplate on. Yeah. So uh, in 2020, uh, January 2020, I think three, uh, you know, this player, United States, European Union, and Japan, uh, they kind of uh, tried this trilateral, you know, dialogue on these subsidies. Right? And then I think um, we might have to kind of, uh, you know, start some sort of a dialogue on this industrial policy, what would be the uh, sort of principles uh, or some of the, uh, the baseline that we have to keep, you know, to prevent this uh, race to the bottom uh, from happening again. So, and um, um, one more thing. I think the IRA, in a way, also it could kind of uh, uh, 
stimulate this ongoing discussion in the IPAC. I think one of the IRA, this provision, is that only the product, the assembly in North America, but also in this critical material, it needs to be extracted or processed in the FDA partner countries with the United States. But if you look at these FDA partners of the United States, there are only limited countries with these critical raw materials, like Australia or Chile, lithium, et cetera. So if this kind of IPAC could be designated as a FTA, which could be eligible for all these subsidies in the IRA, I think even in the absence of this market access component in IPAC, that could be a big, big boost and incentive for IPAC. So I'll stop here, and I'll come back later. Thank you. So, Jeffrey, thank you. I think you'll give us perspective, particularly on how China may be viewing the world. Hi, everyone. Thanks. Sorry I'm a bit underdressed, but you can have low expectations of people from the city. So the main thing I want to talk about, really, just from a market perspective and in a trade context, is I think some initiatives coming through on one particular aspect of trade is what currencies, what is the payments framework, what is the trade assessment framework, and the like. Because if there's one of many lessons that Beijing is learning from the war, it's that you can be shut out of the global financial system, you know, a click of a, um, of a, uh, a press of a button, right? And if you look at what's happened to Russia's reserves, you know, for example, um, I've been in foreign exchange markets for almost 20 years now, um, following reserve management and the like, and you know, nobody, I can guarantee you, nobody within financial markets expected, you know, reserves to be sequestered, you know, like that over a weekend, right? So, you know, in that context, you need to think about a new framework, you know, for it, and in four letters, you know, that is CBDCs, right? Uh, so uh, many of you would have heard about this um, right now, central bank digital currencies, and I think one monumental um, change from the People's Bank of China was announced um, in December, whereby for the first time, and for those of you who are economic wonks, uh, central bank digital currencies will be included in China's base money calculations, right, in M0. So you have printed money and you have... Um, digital money. And actually, they've laid the groundwork for this about two years ago when they revised in PBOCs and governing law and said specifically that the renminbi can be in physical and in digital format, right? So how does this matter for trade, basically? Well, you know, the dollar is still the world's you know, foremost trade currency, still the world's foremost invoicing currency, right? So even Japan, you know, to this day, you know, when you think about dollar-yen, yen actually doesn't matter much because most Japanese corporates, about half of Japanese trade still invoiced in dollars. Right? So how do you shift away from this framework? You know, was it to start using renminbi, you know, to start using um, so specific you know, renminbi-style frameworks, um, but that didn't work either. For example, they tried this with Iran, right, um, to um, uh, trade in oil, and basically set up a branch in Iran uh, and uh, formulate um, a renminbi-specific payment system, but the bottom line is that this specific bank in Iran was actually you know, owned by a state-owned oil company, um, so it was um, basically a subsidiary of that, but this state-owned oil company still needed access to dollars, right? You like, have to um, set up a financial framework which literally does not need to touch dollars from the get-go to make the whole thing work, right? So now, um, I work for Bank of New York Mellon. It was founded by Alexander Hamilton. Go watch the musical. It's awesome, right? Uh, so, um, and read about why he founded the bank. Uh, so, you know, in that um, context, the dollars had, you know, just sort of, uh, 
you know, already almost 300 years to actually establish this. You know, we're the world's largest custodian. We have $47 trillion with a T in assets and no custody. I think seven out of the top 10 custodians are US banks. And you've got Clearstream and some of the others. You know, they're all EU entities, right? So if you want to set up an alternative away you know, from the quote-unquote you know, Western framework, you know, I'm not preaching whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. The bottom line is you know, people want an alternative, right? So this is where um, about 10 years ago, um, you know, Bitcoin entered China, and I think the PBOC looked at this. Um, well, I'm not sure about this. You know, it could help circumvent our capital controls, and, but I like the technology. Maybe we could do something with this, right? So how's this going to work you know, from a trading framework? How do I disaggregate the trading framework you know, from the dollar you know, altogether? So say you want to trade with an oil company, right? And I've heard lithium you know, just now from former minister. You know, this is like one area where you know, China really is leading the world. So you need to start off with um, to have a central bank you know, in a target country you know, with a swap line with the PBOC, right? Now, this also means um, that the target country will have accounts with the PBOC. The People's Bank of China's digital currency framework is totally account-based, right? So you basically you know, have um, uh, a account you know, with the PBOC and then you will you know, transact on this ledger that the PBOC um, does um, a control. And for your individual trading entity, and most importantly, you know, when you settle your payments and when you pay in renminbi, you can access this swap line. Uh, let's take Chile, you know, for example. You know, about 70% of their uh, um, exports go to China. You've got copper or you know, lithium along the way as well. So basically, you will then um, uh, you will pay for goods or receive goods in renminbi, and then you can transact with your local central bank and uh, in your own currency. But all of this, uh, you know, when you touch the renminbi, all of the transactions is done either through your own ledger, you know, with uh, your local central bank, and the local central bank will transact renminbi, you know, with what's going on uh, with uh, the People's Bank of China. And again, the fact that this has been officially incorporated into their monetary statistics is a really important step. So there are two angles here. You know, one they can do this. You know, on a domestic angle. So uh, you all know what quantitative easing is. You know, money printing. Well, now you can print digitally as well. This has already happened. You know, happy days. You wake up in the morning, suddenly you see in your account, you know, a thousand renminbi to spend. Great, right? But the way this is done is, it's not that you have an account with the People's Bank of China. They partner, you know, with specific platforms with an account at the People's Bank of China, and then your spending money, you know, will show up, you know, in your account with the platform. You know, just take you know, the Chinese equivalent of Amazon, you know, for example. So the same thing in a trading framework, you know, as well. You can uh, have you know, access to digitally printed, you know, money um, for settling, you know, your um, import bills with Chinese entities. And given that you know, China is now you know, almost you know, captive you know, with a lot of you know, global, um, you know, as well, emerging markets in terms of being their largest trading partner, this is how things are going to move forward. So um, you know, all this talk over the last 10, 20 years, you know, within um, you know, trade policy is to, you know, just, uh, so I'm not a policy wonk, you know, there, so I'll leave that to the experts. Um, but just in terms of how to disaggregate oneself, you know, from the dollar framework, it's never been about, so they, they started off about trying to replace the dollar. You always say, so is it going to be the demise of the dollar? Um, so is the euro going to replace the dollar? The renminbi uh, going to uh, re replace the dollar? You're asking the wrong question there, right? It's about how to create a new parallel framework where almost the dollar never existed in the first place, right? So I'm not going to take a view on whether this is possible or not, you know, but in the new digital economy, you really have to bring that into the trading sphere, you know, as well. So yes, you know, you have um, the individual political arguments in terms of policy where the politicians and the experts will need to act, but on a practical basis, you know, how do you actually create a full-fledged alternative 
where, let's be frank, ultimately sanctions you know, cannot touch. Right? So you know, that is going to be the framework for you know, not just for China, but elsewhere. So it's not about then this new, so if we think, let's say, five to 10 years up ahead, uh, up ahead it's not about this framework you know, replacing the dollar or supplanting the dollar in any way. It just is a form of you know, multipolarity uh, you know, where China you know, can you know, have its own poll. And you know, this is not exclusive you know, to the PBOC. You know, any central bank can, can actually uh, uh, copy this. Um, and um, the uh, Chinese actually don't even have the world's you know, first fully fledged digital currency. It's actually the Central Bank of the Bahamas, right? It's called the Sand Dollar. Go look it up. Really cute. Um, so, you know, that's where, you know, they are acting that um, already. So we just need to think outside the box in terms of how things are changing. You move goods, you know, that is always going to happen. Move services, that is always going to happen as well. But the payments framework for it, there's this entire new strand of trade policy, you know, where um, uh, the Minister of Commerce and the People's Bank of China, a month ago, they launched a new document specifically titled Increasing the Usage of Renminbi in Promoting China's international trade, right? So you can't do that, you know, with, within the SWIFT framework, you know, with the other payments frameworks. You know, China tried something called CHIPS as well, didn't uh, really uh, work either. So now I do think that you're going to see, you know, more and more of the CBDC framework, you know, being brought online as well. So some, so I'm sure all of you are really tech savvy, um, something to monitor up ahead. And um, finally, I know we're short on time, you know, just to highlight, you know, some of the current, I would say, economic trends that are trying to focus on uh, in terms of trade. I think there are three steps to China's reopening. First step is commodities, you know, we're seeing that already. China can't move the oil in terms of oil and natural gas, um, and, you know, Russia is um, becoming increasingly a large supplier already. Uh, but in terms of iron ore, copper, or lithium, I think, you know, that's where uh, we can um, see a lot of demand coming through. And secondly, it's all about the tourism. Thailand was probably expecting 100,000 Chinese tourists three months ago. Now they expect 7 million, you know, happy days. Uh, but uh, they need to scale things up as well. So we're going to see a lot of supply chain issues, you know, coming through um, all over. Um, just to give you a sense, you know, how much um, is missing. Um, so China ran a services deficit of close to $300 billion in 2019, and then it collapsed to below $100 billion. So for three years, there's basically half a trillion dollars worth of Chinese services trade missing with the rest of the world. That's going to be injected into the global economy. Go figure. It's going to be a lot, right? Will London, Paris have enough staff to man the hotel rooms? You go to Bista Village in six months' time, have a look. It's going to be completely different. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, right? But finally, what's missing in the middle, and this is very important on the industrial side, is so China wants an investment push, um, but um, it's importing iron ore from Australia, coking coal from Australia, they're going to make steel, and then they're going to have to make stuff with steel as well. This means importing um, high value added durable goods from the US, you know, from Germany. Uh, so you know, this is where I hope protectionism you know, does not come in. And we can talk about the microchip aspect as well and what's going on with Holland and Taiwan, for example. But you know, that I think is the missing part of what markets are not pricing it right now. I'll hold up my hand and say, so far I've been wrong on that. Yesterday, Caterpillar CEO said they're not seeing the orders come through in China yet. Actually, if anything, 2023 might be below 2022 um, levels. So that came as a surprise to me. Uh, but these orders you know, will come. So we are in this environment where things can and flourish. I just um, sincerely hope protectionism doesn't uh, get on, um, uh, doesn't get in the way. I'll leave it there for now. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, so thanks to all our speakers, um, and I'd like to make as much use uh, or give people as much opportunity as possible um, uh, to ask questions. Uh, if you don't have any, I've got plenty. Um, and there are a few as well online. Um, but we'd like to take, a, say, a couple at a time and get a few comments from the panel. So um, I think there are roving mics. Uh, if, you would, if you do have a question, um, there's 
one here and one over in the corner there. So we'll take those two first and then go on to the next session. So my name is Daniel. I'm studying a Master in Political Economy of Europe here at the European Institute. Um, I was. I wanted to say first thank you for, for this conversation. It was quite interesting. Um, I had a question over the war in Ukraine clearly have destroyed completely the Russia and the EU trade relationship, breaking one of the most important energy supply from all the world, um, leading to the EU to negotiate for new supply channels. Therefore, what is the Brussels strategy uh, on trade issues to avoid dependence on a new supplier? Perhaps more bilateral treaties or work through the WTO uh, kind of uh, instance, I would say. Um, thank you. So if I've understood that, it's about when you're um, diversifying your supply chain, how do you get the sort of global system around that? Yes, exactly. More kind of what is the Brussels strategy over terms of the future. Okay, and over on the other far side. So, Ignacia, I'm going to come to you first with that. Let's hear what the other question is. Hi. Hi, Meta. Um, LSE, um, doing a BSc in Geography Economics, so this is extremely relevant to what I'm doing. Um, I have a question for probably um, Han Ku. Um, so, I just wanted to ask, like, um, what's uh, what is um, South Korea's perspective on the U.S.-China trade war, and um, what would be your advice to Asian countries who do not wish to pick sides um, with the increasing, uh, you know, rising tension between the East and the West? One last question, as an LSE student, um, I, know, I know that it's um, Bolalex is a subscription-based um, platform. Would you consider giving education access to LSE students? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so there's one for Hanku uh, very much there, which also reflects um, uh, a lot of the questions uh, which have come in online, uh, namely the position not only of South Korea, but I think other uh, Asian countries in this uh, uh, standoff between the G2, as you called it. But Ignacio, do you want to pick up yeah. first on the diversification of supplies and how that is managed? Well, I mean, it's clear that the invasion of Ukraine by Russia is an act which required a very firm and coordinated response, and we have been working together with our allies to be sure that we applied sanctions vis-à-vis -vis Russia that were effective in limiting the capacity of Russia to wage its war of aggression. I mean, at the same time, it is clear that all of this is having an economic impact on Europe. We, are obviously, we were obviously highly dependent on Russia when it came to energy. And Russia was also an important export market for the European Union, and all of that is gone. So it is clear that in order to respond to those situations, it is essential for us to diversify. It is essential for us to diversify our dependency on the energy sector to, from Russia, and I think we have been making a huge effort and very successfully in a very short period of time. It is also important to place this in the perspective of the transition to, towards renewables and to intensify the, our efforts to move in the direction of net zero, but it is also increasingly important to find uh, alternative markets for our exports. And that's why I think uh, there is now a much stronger interest in the European Union to pursue an active trade policy agenda, which includes uh, concluding uh, 
free trade agreements. It is very clear the, that the political impulse behind the, the negotiations with countries like uh, uh, Chile, with Australia, New Zealand, and very importantly Mercosur, because from the economic point of view, that is by far the, the most significant and largest market, is very much also helped by this perspective that we need to be able to both to find the, the different sources of inputs into the European Union, but also to open the new markets for, for our exports. So, as I said, uh, together with our effort to have a functioning uh, multilateral trading system, this is also a very active uh, strategy to use uh, our different trade policy tools in support uh, of diversification. And that's part uh, of our strategy to respond uh, also to the challenges that have been created by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Thank you. Uh, Hanku, yes. uh, thank you for the very tough question. Uh, this U.S.-China trade war, um, you know, we don't have a magic solution. Um, but I think it's clear that um, not just Korea, but all these uh, countries in Asia, and I believe many in Europe, uh, don't want to take sides. You know? And uh, uh, you know, the, during this rapid uh, growth of Chinese economy, um, you know, many countries in the Indo-Pacific uh, has developed very, uh, you know, close economic ties uh, with China. So, uh, just unraveling uh, this completely or completely decoupling uh, is not really a realistic option. So, the question is how to find the, you know, kind of uh, right balance uh, between all these, uh, you know, the countries uh, with different system and. Uh, how to find you know, this uh, mechanism or platform to work together. So that's why I, I kind of emphasize the, you know, the importance of middle power countries. You know, middle power countries um, you know, need to step up and then you know, raise voice to really bring back um, this multilateralism and pluralateralism. Thank you. Um, there's one question here which, uh, on, online, which I'm going to put to Crawford in a minute, uh, which is about uh, digital trade, which you talked about. Um, and uh, uh, the question is really, um, given the increasing fragment fragmentation in data regulation, uh, what can be done uh, uh, at the WTO level to create a sort of level playing field or to make it more inclusive? Uh, so hold that, and there was one other hand that was up, yes. Um, so we'll take one more question from the floor at this stage as well. Okay, so it's one of the other options um, for tackling climate change through trade agreements, I think, is, is it? Yeah. Um, 
So I might get a number of views on that, actually. But Crawford, do you want to talk a bit more about how you see uh, the way forward in, in making sure you don't get digital fragmentation and, and getting trade, that digital trade, working well? Well, yeah, I mean, look, I have a very simple-minded view of it, which is, you know, it would be highly desirable um, if we were able to advance plurilaterally in the WTO on that. I mean, if it was multilateral, even better, I mean, it would be great, but uh, on the e-commerce front, which is where we can, under that e-commerce uh, rubric, um, I think, develop some kind of rules and practices which would advance a digital agenda. Um, I have to say, I'm, you know, I'm a bit at the impatient end of the spectrum. Um, I don't think we can wait 10 years. I don't know that Ignacio is really saying wait 10 years, but I mean, I'm glad there are people thinking 10 years uh, about 10-year time horizons, and I think there are some things that are really strategic you have to think in those time periods. But in terms of what I call the more transactional trade policy agendas, I mean, part of the problem with the WTO, frankly, um, is that it just takes too long. Okay, I mean, okay, it's fine. If it takes too long, it takes too long. But you've got to find other alternatives. So, absolutely fine with the e-commerce agenda. Really want to push it forward. And uh, what what is really positive about it is that it doesn't have to be simply a transactional, if you like, classic trade negotiation, which is here are your undertakings. I mean, it also allows for um, what I would call positive measures of support to economies that are actually having difficulties uh, for whatever reason. Um, and if you like, taking on obligations or actually getting best practice in place. So it's not a purely, if you like, transactional negotiating forum. It's also something where you can actually provide support to particularly some developing countries where that's going to be helpful to the process. So I think that's highly desirable to do it. It doesn't have to only be exclusively in the WTO. There are plenty of other international forums which are involved in that. And there are plenty of other instruments which which states are pursuing themselves outside the narrow trade negotiating forum. Um, you know, digital ministries around the world is kind of often lost to trade policy wants, but, you know, digital uh, ministries around the world um, and in international organisations are also undertaking a whole series of, of treaties uh, and practices which facilitate, or hopefully facilitate, sometimes the danger if they don't, um, you know, a more effective digital interface uh, across the globe. And uh, the ITU and organisations like that are actually highly relevant to all of this. So it's not exclusively a trade negotiating function. But when it comes to trade agreements on this, I, you know, our own feeling is that that has to be complemented by being able to move ahead briskly with those that are like-minded um, to really push them forward. So it's not possible to do things at varying speeds. And, and frankly, uh, that, that kind of more advanced approach is in the bilateral and plurilateral framework. It's not an either-or, it can be both and. Um, but I think in actual fact, if you really want to press ahead with it, if you're going to keep the commercial community with you on this, which is what you want to do, it's going to have to be much faster than, than what uh, is going to be done in the WTO and in Geneva. I regret to say I wish I was wrong, but I don't think so. Thank you. Um, so, Ignacio, briefly, and I thought, Iana, you might want to comment on the climate change uh, question as well. But very briefly, because we're out of time almost. Um, well, if I may also comment uh, quickly on what uh, Crawford just said uh, on the digital, because I don't think it's an either-or situation. I think you need to be able to invest on all fronts. You should be able to, to invest bilaterally 
where you can. You need to try to do things bilaterally where you can, but at the same time, you also need to find a way of engaging multilaterally. And if it comes to the issue of e-commerce, it fundamentally comes to the question, is it possible or not to find uh, common ground uh, when it comes to the regulation of digital between the United States, the European Union, uh, and uh, China? I'm not saying that to minimize the impact of any other uh, trading partner. We are negotiating with many countries in the world, but at the end of the day, the fundamental question behind where you can agree on something in the e-commerce negotiation, it is this one, and that's an issue which basically we should be able to know within the next year or so. Now, on the issue of trade and climate, again, I think you really need to be able to engage at all the levels. I mean, as you know, in all our recent free trade agreements, we have included an explicit climate dimension, where it is actually identified Paris as an essential element clause, as we did for the first time in the agreement of the UK, or in the case of our more recent agreement with New Zealand, also included a specific binding commitments on the question of respect of the objectives of the Paris Agreement. And the agreement with New Zealand also includes a number of other innovative elements about how to deal with climate-related matters in the context of a trade agreement. But at the same time, it's clear that global environmental challenges like climate are global issues. You also need to be able to engage, to engage in the context of the WTO, and that's why we are actually very much pushing at this point in time to have a revitalized follow role for the Committee of Trade and Environment in the WTO as a place where you really need to be able to discuss about all the trade-related aspects of global environmental challenge, and where you really need to see the different type of measures which are being taken by different countries, but efforts can be made to enhance the compatibility between them. And also to look into issues which are horizontal. I mean, many countries are taking action when it comes to combating uh, climate change. A lot of them require measuring the carbon embedded emissions. Again, this is the sort of issues that you need to be able to discuss in the context of the WTO. And there are certain things which you can do multilaterally. There are certain things that you can do plurilaterally among countries which have a common commitment towards net zero objectives. That's why we were actually among the initiators of a coalition of trade ministers for climate, which met recently at the beginning of this year, precisely to explore what it is that can also be done plurilaterally to push forward the trade-related aspects of the climate agenda. So I think you need to be able to engage on all fronts, the bilateral, the plurilateral, and the multilateral. Thank you. Jana, do you want to add a final comment, and then we'll have to wrap up, I think? Uh, it's a big question. I mean, um, if I were the U.S. and the EU, because both are pushing with different emphasis on, on, on forced labor and climate and things like that, but fundamentally uh, currently pushing a similar agenda, um, I think it's important to then obviously differentiate it with whom you're talking to. Obviously, you are not going to deal with China and forced labor in the same way as you're going to deal with problems in a very poor economy in Africa with, few, with very few, you know, very low trade volume uh, and uh, more vulnerabilities than anything else. I think that's an important thing to, to have in mind. I think it's politically super important that a message and something tough is being uh, done with China on, on Xinjiang and all these things because it, it seems quite uh, systemic. Um, 
what I have a problem with uh, uh, looking at the EU uh, and also the US policy, but <laughs> my bread and butter tends to be EU, is, is the fact that we are going increasingly conditional, increase, increasingly punitive, but these countries are not getting anything in return. You know, we have migrants crossing yet, um, the Mediterranean dying. We don't take more, I mean, we're not really opening up our markets. You know, those quotas uh, in agriculture still remain extremely narrow, limited, and generally they're too small to matter. Uh, so, and, and the, the U.S. is the same. What I hear of a critique of IPEF is precisely that, that the U.S. is coming with standards and rules, but some of the countries, especially on the poor side, don't, you know, how are you going to incentivize us? Is, is it worth investing um, in more in cleaner and more uh, human rights, labor rights compliant? What's how, where, where is the, invest, uh, the, the, the incentive side, the, which would, on top of that, bring more also political and geopolitical benefits. So that's what that would be my response to this. Okay, so we are at eight o'clock, um, and uh, I think given particularly transport issues, people uh, will uh, want to get away, um, uh, but I hope you've enjoyed uh, this uh, session this evening. I'd like to thank, uh, and perhaps you can join me, uh, all our speakers for uh, the thoughtful contributions that they've made. And I'd also like to thank uh, everyone uh, at uh, LSE events uh, and the European Institute who's supported uh, this event. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.